If you have your Bible, please go ahead and grab them and turn to our passage this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find our passage on page 797. And if you're here and you don't own a Bible, you can read at home. Please take that uh, with you home as a gift from us. We'd love to teach you God's Word by reading it with you. Just take that as a gift from us. Mark 12, 38 through 44. Being seen is either a terrifying or a comforting thing. Being seen is either terrifying or comforting. Here's what I mean. Have you ever thought you were alone? That no one could see you? So you did something you would not normally do when people are around. You ever found yourself in that position? It's kind of like this. In this, one of the summers during college, I worked at this convenience store, kind of convenience store called Fred's. Now, Fred's is the upper class version of Dollar General. It's a fine establishment, I would say. And I was both a cashier and kind of a security guy. And one day while I was working, there was someone that came in and I was warned that this person is notorious for stealing. So I began to follow him around the store. He had no idea that I was watching what he was doing. And I watched him. He thought he was alone. And he took a steering wheel cover, like you know, put on the thing in your car, and he just shoves it up under his clothes and just walks around like nothing happened. And so I go and I say, sir, I, I need you to remove that. And he's like, what are you talking about? He thought he wasn't seen, but literally you know that Sherlock Lacey was on the case. And he, I was like, you steering wheel cover under your clothes, I need you to remove that. And he was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, either you have like a tumor that's shaped like a steering wheel, or you have it under your clothes. And he's like, are you talking about this thing? I'm like, yes, that thing. He looked terrified to know that he had been seen. He thought he was free, that no one was watching his activity. Being terrifying or being seen can be a terrifying thing. But also it can be a comforting thing. Imagine a child who's learning how to swim, swimming with the confidence that that parent, the attentive parent is in the water watching them. Or getting on a plane, though it's a, a burden and tedious to go through TSA, having all the people go through scans gives us all a peace of mind that everyone has been seen. If something goes wrong, we can trust and know that the people have been seen. Even just knowing that help is near, if we're living our lives and there's people nearby who can help us if something goes poorly or something goes wrong. Being seen is either terrifying or a comforting thought. And though it's often we know it's true, rarely do we think about it or feel the weight that we are never alone or unseen. Every thought, every desire, every word, every action is seen not by men, but by God. There has not been a moment in your life that he's missed. There's not been a time where he was looking away at something else and was distracted. Everything you have done, everything you have thought, everything you've said, God has record of. He's seen everything. The unseen God is the all-seeing God. What should this do, knowing this truth? What should it produce in us, knowing that God sees everything? What should it lead us to? How should we live in the sight of God? I think in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to teach us there's one thing we should flee and one thing we should be filled with, knowing that God sees everything. So why don't you look at our passage this morning and follow along with me as I read Mark 12, 38 through 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. How should we live knowing the unseen God is the all-seen God? Well, the first thing is we should flee from hypocrisy. Flee from hypocrisy. And the second thing is we should be filled with hope. Number one, flee from hypocrisy. That's verses 38 through 40. And number two, we should be filled with hope. That's verses 41 through 44. Let's look at point one now, flee from hypocrisy. In the past few weeks, we've seen in Mark 11 and 12 that Jesus my mic's going in and out, but we're just going to power through. He's been confronted by these religious leaders. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity and were angry at his teachings and his works. So they made it their aim to bring Jesus down. So in some sense, they put him on a public trial, trying to expose how foolish he is and how foolish what he says is and how foolish his works are. But the reality is they could find no wrong with Jesus. He was blameless before all of them. If they were going to bring Jesus down, they would need to lie about who he is and what he's done to do it. But now the tables have kind of turned. Jesus, instead of being on trial, puts the scribes on trial. He begins to let them know that he has not been fooled about who they are. He has seen who they are all along. And so now Jesus wants to do, what he's going to do is to expose them for who they truly are. So in the court, This is not a private conversation in someone's home. In the temple courts, Jesus begins to to preach and teach publicly about the nature and character of the scribes. Mark records Jesus in verse 38 saying, beware of the scribes. Now, he's not merely saying to avoid them, though I think that's true. He is saying, look at their life, watch how they live, and be nothing like them. Avoid them all together. What is Jesus' biggest critique of these scribes, of these religious leaders, the men who were supposed to know the word, to expose the word, and interpret the word? Well, they intentionally deceive. They seek to look one way in public so that people trust them and and give them praise and honor. But when no one is looking, they are filled with greed. And this shows itself in how they treat the most vulnerable among them, in particular, the widows. And Jesus here gives a perfect example of what hypocrisy looks like. He's saying, if you want to live a life of hypocrisy, be just like the scribes. But if you don't, then flee from them in every way. And he gives us kind of two things they do. One, they love the praise of men. 
And number two, they perform to deceive men. They love the praise that comes from men. And number two, because they love this, because they're not genuine, they perform in order to deceive men. Let's look at those two things now. They, they love the praise that comes from men. Jesus tells us here, he critiques them first about their robes. These are long robes that they were wearing. Uh, these were prayer shawls that they would wear in hopes to distinguish themselves as the, the religious elite, to show off their money, their, their wealth, and their knowledge, to distinguish them from the rest. And they would wear these in the markets to make sure everyone knows. Everyone knew the scribes are coming. And so these greeting in the marketplaces that Jesus means, what he was saying is they would come into the market and everyone would be sitting down and they would want everyone to rise in their honor. That the scribes were coming. Now look at these great scribes, these men of God, these men of the word, and they would want everyone to acknowledge their greatness and their position. The best seat in the synagogue, they would sit right up front and they would be sitting facing the congregation, wearing their nice robes, wanting everyone to see them, to, to fear them, and to trust and honor them. They did all this because they were hungry for glory. Not the glory of God, but the glory of their own name. They did this because they wanted men to see them as impressive. They wanted men to honor them. They were using the word of God not to faithfully shepherd the sheep, but to bring more praise and honor unto their name. They weaponized the thing that God had entrusted them with to shepherd the sheep, and they used it for their own gain. I don't think Jesus is belittling honoring those in authority. He said that a chapter ago about paying to Caesar what is Caesar, giving honor. No, I think here what Jesus is doing is he is calling out those who use their authority not for the benefit of others, but for their own benefit and praise. He's calling them out for the things that they've done, who use their authority for their own benefit, who take every opportunity for their own gain and for their own advantage. We need to see this today. The seedbed of hypocrisy is always a desire to be seen as impressive. Okay, I will. The seedbed of hypocrisy is always a desire to be seen as impressive. To be honored by men. A person who loves the praise of men will almost do anything to secure it. When you think about your life, What motivates you? What drives you? What are you hoping for when you submit that project? When you post that picture or video? When you give the presentation? Are you secretly hopeful that people will finally realize how wonderful you are? And that you'll finally get the praise you're due? Or is it little to you that you might be praised by men? Because you do everything for the glory of God anyways. The aim of the Christian life, regardless if you cut grass, close million-dollar deals, or or are a homemaker, should be to work unto God so that God might get the praise. All that we are and all that we have is from God and should be used in return to praise God. Think of a great violinist. Let's say Jonathan Armerding, maybe. Imagine he plays just this beautiful piece of music, and we stand to applaud the violin. Now, the violin's great. It's a beautiful piece of machinery. But we don't praise the violin. It's merely a tool. 
No, we don't pray the means in which the ark comes through. We praise, the, we praise the one who communicated it through playing the means. We praise the one, the artist, not the way he communicates. Brothers and sisters, we are merely instruments. God is the creator. God is the artist. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the praise. We should be happy to be a vessel in which God gets glory which God communicates his greatness, his goodness. We should do everything that we do so that all would know and trust that the unseen God is the all-seeing God, and he is glorious in all that he does. Jesus here shows us that this whole thing about greatness that he's talked about a whole lot, the scribes are a negative example of that. This whole thing's coming full circle again. The scribes embody what it means to be great in the eyes of the world. They have the, the world's idea of greatness. They're filled with selfish and ungodly ambition, which prioritizes self, not others. But true greatness, the greatness that Jesus calls us to and commands us to live to as his people, is fueled by a godly ambition that lives for the glory of God and the good of his people. These men loved the glory that came from men. These men loving, loved getting credit for everything that happened. Though the word of God should have caused them to be humble, it caused them to be proud. They used it to, to show off how great they were as a mean to get glory for themselves and not for God, as a mean for, for their own good and not the good of the people. Okay, it sounds terrifying to be a hypocrite. No one wants to be identified as that. How do we avoid being like the scribes? How do we flee from their example? Well, the first thing you can do is let your weakness show. <clears throat> Confess sins and struggles and fears. Be seen as vulnerable and transparent. Don't be afraid to look weak. Give praise to those even when you want praise yourself. Be generous with it. Be genuine and generous with praise to those in your life. Celebrate others when they're strong in areas that you are weak. There's something about people seeing the vulnerabilities of your life, being transparent, that suffocates pride and the desire to be seen as impressive by men. When you feel free to be honest and transparent about your life, you'll be free from trying to impress those very people because they see who you really are. What do you have to gain by trying to be seen as impressive? However, if you always have to be seen as having your life together, you are in a very spiritually dangerous place. If you feel free to be vulnerable, you're in a safe spot. But if you always have to be seen as being put together or knowing all the right answers, you're in a very dangerous position, just like these scribes. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about not being afraid to be seen for who you really are. He says this, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no better by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it's ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches, and it would still be closer to the truth. Brothers and sisters, there's a real freedom in being known. And if you want to avoid hypocrisy, then open up your life to other people. That's one of the means in which God is going to kill pride in your life and kill the fear of man in your life. Jesus confronts these scribes because they 
wanted to show that they had their life together. They wanted to show off their knowledge and their strength and their glory. And yet on the inside, they were inwardly wicked and filled with greed. That's what Jesus confronts them on next. They performed to deceive men. You see this here in verse 40. Jesus says to them, who devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus said that though they want the praise of men, they should be seen for who they really are, which is corrupt. They desire to be seen as impressive. In doing so, it's led them to scheme and manipulate for their own personal benefit. Jesus says of those, they devour widows' houses. Widows were the most vulnerable in their society. And it was the responsibility of Israel, in particular, religious leaders, to make sure that the widows were cared for and had what they needed. They had an obligation to the widow, to the foreigner, to the sojourner, to the orphans. In the Old Testament, God's condemnation of the people was often because they did not care for the vulnerable among them, that they neglected the widow. Just listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to why. Listen to the reason God tells them he won't accept their worship. He says this, verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you of this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God was unwilling to accept their worship because they were unwilling to care for the vulnerable among them. In fact, they did the opposite. They took advantage of them. Jesus' condemnation of the scribes sounds just like Isaiah's in Isaiah chapter 1. Instead of caring for the widows, they were devouring them. How were they devouring the widows? Well, many of them were putting an undue burden on widows to give to the temple. Some were intentionally mismanaging the widow's estate in hopes that that would be given to them instead. It was often the case that they were manipulating widows into being abundantly hospitable. Many of these scribes were living off subsidies and weren't being paid for their work, and so they were leaning on the widows to care for them and to provide for them, abusing them in their homes. The very people they were supposed to protect, they in turn took advantage of. The scribes had been entrusted with the authority to be a blessing and not a burden. Listen, that is always the aim of authority, not for your gain, but for others. To be a blessing to other people in your life who are under your charge. And if you're the kind of person who always uses your authority for your own benefit, for your own gain, you should not be trusted with authority. This is a good reminder for all of us today. Authority is always a gift from God to be used for other people's good. If you have any kind of authority, being a husband, a parent, a a teacher, a manager, a pastor, a coach, this authority is given to you for a season to serve the people who are under you so that they might flourish, they might prosper, and you might represent God well to them. That's the whole point of authority in your life. Think about it like this. 
Imagine it's Friday night. Family's gathered in the kitchen. And you are about to partake in the cold cream of Christ. That is Bluebell ice cream, cookie two-step. And you have been entrusted with the responsibility of the ice cream scoop. A great responsibility. A great stewardship. Now, the temptation might be to take that scoop and use it for your own gain and to give yourself the largest portions or to play a little bit of favorites. The, the wife comes up and she's all sweet and beautiful and you know I mean to give her some and the kid comes up. But that would be a misuse of your authority. You know, the right way to use that scoop is to make sure everybody has what they need. Everybody gets to enjoy this great ice cream, even if it means you don't get any at all. That's what authority should be like. That's how you should use the authority that you have in your life. It's given from God so that those under your charge might flourish and benefit, even if it comes at great cost to yourself. Authority is always intrinsically outward-facing. How can I serve those under my charge? How can I make sure they have what they need to do what God has called them to do? In the moment, it turns inward. That's when misuse and unfortunately often abuse takes place. Authority is outward looking, not inward facing. If you were to ask your spouse, your employees, your students, what would they tell you about how you use authority in your life? Are you harsh or gentle? Are you quick to take credit or give it? And would even those under your authority, would they feel safe to be honest with you about how you use authority? When you know the unseen God is the all-seeing God, you should feel a great fear and sobriety about the authority that he's given to you in your life. He will hold you accountable for how you use it on the last day. Sadly, these scribes felt no fear. They felt no shame in how they abused the authority that God had given them. They took advantage of these widows, and they would seek to silence them by their long prayers. You notice that? What Jesus says, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So they were seeking to show that they should not be questioned. And they would do this in their long prayers. They, you can imagine someone saying when they hear an accusation against the scribe, just listen to the man, pray. Only a man of God can pray like that. They might even use the, the, the prayers of the scribes to say, how dare a widow bring such accusation against a man of God like this? And again, Jesus is not condemning long prayers. He is condemning the use of them to be seen as impressive or to gain an advantage in people's lives. So if you're here at TRBC and you pray in the morning or evening service, you will always serve the body best if you think of God alone. When you consider Him alone, when you pray to Him alone, the moment your mind goes from God to thinking about how people are perceiving you, it ceases to be a prayer and becomes a performance. And we want none of that in this room on Sunday morning. When you pray, whether short or long prayers, always fix your mind on the God of heaven and the saints of earth will always be edified. Those are truly the Lord's will be encouraged by the prayer, a true prayer that is offered to God. These men were offering performative prayers to cover their tracks so that others might not see their greed and what they've done, the, the abuses that have taken place under their leadership. They were performing to manipulate. They were performing to deceive. But the reality is this, God is not mocked. God sees all and knows all. These scribes will reap what they have sown. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 40. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. 
Meaning, if you've ever wondered how God feels about religious charlatans, those who abuse and take advantage of the weak and vulnerable, this passage makes it abundantly clear. That God is not mocked, that he sees all and he knows all, he will not be fooled. Though these scribes could fool everybody in their life with their performance and appearance, that they looked godly and and good and they were trustworthy, God saw who they are and their swindling, swindling and lies would be held accountable on the great day of the Lord. One of the most terrifying passages in all the Bible that I assume if you've been walking with Jesus very long has afflicted you in your own conscience is Matthew 7, 21 through 23. You know that passage, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? And he says what? Depart from me for I never knew you. I think Jesus has these scribes in mind. I think Jesus is looking at men like this who walk around in the name of God and they do all these great things and yet their hearts are far from God. These will be the men that Jesus will say on that last day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I saw your abuse. I saw your ungodliness. I saw your greed. I saw your hypocrisy. For in the words of Richard Baxter, God has never saved any man for being a preacher. And he won on that day. These men were whitewashed tombs. They had the appearance of holiness and godliness. Many people might praise them, but on the inside, they were filled with greed and evil desires. They could deceive men, but they could not deceive the all-seeing God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, how does all this make you feel? How does, it, how does it make you feel knowing that there's not been a moment of your life that God's missed? That he's seen everything that you've done, and he has a very long memory. He remembers everything, all the sins that you've committed against him. There hasn't been a moment you've missed, a time he was distracted. He sees yourself more accurately, more accurately than you do. He knows you inside and out. Left on our own, this should terrify each one of us. It's a terrifying thing knowing that a holy God has seen our unholy acts. He's seen our disobedience, our lies, and lust, both public and private. And we deserve God's eternal judgment because of our sins against him. So left on our own, we've got no hope standing before the all-seeing God. But there's good news about God. He's not left us on our own. He sent Jesus to die in our place, to die for the sins, to take the punishment for the sins of his people so that we would not stand alone before God, so that we could lean not our own righteousness. Because if I stand before God, I have nothing to say. God, I failed you. You've seen all the things I've done, even the things I've forgotten that I've done. You know them still. But there's good news. If you will turn from your sin meaning repent, agree with God that your sin's really bad, and turn to Christ and trust that he paid for your sins on the cross and from his resurrection, God will remember your sins no more. He casts them behind his back. So I can live today even though I'm a broken man with great confidence because what Christ has done on my behalf. And when you know what Christ has done, it frees you from hypocrisy because you don't want to bring a life of shame on his name for his glory. Oh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you, turn to Christ today and have your sins forgiven. You don't have to fear death, what God might say about you when you stand before him on that day. No, you can rejoice knowing that when you stand before God, if you're in Christ, he won't cast you out, but he'll invite you in forever. Heaven will be your home if you'll turn to Christ today and trust in him. How should we live knowing the unseen God is the all-seeing God? Well, it should cause each one of us to flee from hypocrisy. 
to be honest about who we are, to be transparent about our sins and struggles, to seek not to impress men, but to live our lives in such a way that God might get glory through our lives. Not only that, it should fill us with hope. She calls us to flee hypocrisy, but it should fill us with hope. Look down at verses 41 through 44. I'm going to reread that again. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Mark tells of another story of Jesus' final days on earth before he's crucified. And it seems disconnected, but Mark leaves it up to the reader to make the connection to the previous passage. Because there's a reason these things are together. Mark tells us that Jesus is yet again in the temple. He's sitting opposite of the treasury. There would have been kind of 13 locations in the temple that people would have come and and given money and different things to the temple for the work to continue on there. And Mark notes that many rich people were coming and giving large sums of money. They probably knew this based on the, the kind of coin they were giving. They were giving a silver coin that was a denarius, which was kind of a day's wages. And if they were giving a gold coin, that was a month's wages or month's salary that they were giving. So Jesus is watching, and you see the coins fly by. That's a lot of money that's going into these treasuries. But then a poor widow comes, and Mark notes two small copper coins. If you want to see one, Jane Longmire has one after the service. You can look at it there. She has one. Two small copper coins. Itty-bitty, our understanding, which our translations say, which make a penny. But if you look in your Bible, there's a footnote that'll tell you what the amount was. It was one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. Again, a denarius was a day's labor's worth of wages. What she gave was the equivalent of about eight minutes' worth of work of an eight-hour day. Eight minutes. It would be maybe a dollar or two in our own day, kind of the equivalent of that. Now, some might be tempted to think she's cheap, that she's just giving a little bit of what she has and wants to move on. And there's a good chance she was being scrutinized. The reason that Jesus might have saw it, not because he, he, could, he may have saw it just on his own, was probably she was being scrutinized by the religious leaders, maybe even the scribes, for how little that she was giving. And I think that might have been the thing that drew Jesus' attention to her. And seeing what's taking place, Jesus calls the disciples to himself because he sees this as a wonderful teaching moment. If you look down in verse 41, it's Jesus starts and, and says this to them, or excuse me, verse 43. Truly I tell you, tell you, meaning, listen up, this is really important what I'm about to say to you. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who contributed to the offering box. What did Jesus just say? Jesus just said, this poor widow has put in more than all of those. Everyone who put in a day's wages or a month's wage or even a year's wage potentially. Now I'm no accountant, but Jesus' math does not make any sense to me. How do you make sense of a small copper coins, two small copper coins, being worth more than a month's wages? It's because the kingdom economy is very different than our own. Jesus looks not at the amount, but the heart behind the amount. That's what matters to him. That's what he values. Jesus needs nothing and no one. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and if he needed something, he would not be asking us. 
He has all that he needs. The rich folks, they, they gave a lot of money. Yes, but it was excess cash. There was no pain with the gift. They felt no stress or anxiety about how much they were about to give. They weren't worried about where their next meal was going to come from or if they could pay the rent. It was easy to be generous when there's little cost to you. However, this woman, she didn't just give a day's wages. She didn't just give a month's salary. She gave everything she had. And to make sure we understand the point, Jesus concludes with this, all she had to live on, meaning she had nothing left. There was no more savings. There was no retirement account. Nothing. She gave more than everyone combined because she gave all that she had. What's the point? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, the scribes can tell you that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, but they do neither. And yet this poor widow, who those very scribes are taking advantage of, is the perfect example of a life pleasing to God. She has given God everything that she had. Jesus is teaching us the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of God. The world is impressed with clothes and money and eloquence and status, and God is not. God is not impressed with how much you know. He's not swayed by how well you pray, and he could not care less about what you wear or how much you give. God looks at the heart. The unseen God is the all-seeing God, and he looks at what the world cannot see. He looks for those who delight in him. God delights in those who delight in him, regardless of how much they give. It's amazing and convicting that this woman's faith led her to give everything she had. What faith this woman had. Now, it's easy to read this text like there's something missing. Like we only got part of the manuscript. Like the translation just got cut off. Like there's something else that's supposed to be there. It ends very abrupt. Jesus just says she gave everything she had to live on. And there's no explanation of what it means or what Jesus is trying to tell us. We would assume that it would say the the poor widow gave everything and then Jesus stopped her and said, your faith has been seen, keep your money. We also might assume that that it said that she gave all that she had and the next day she received 10,000 fold from God. But it doesn't say that either. No, all it says is she gave everything she had to live on. All. It's as if Mark is saying to us, let the reader understand. It's tempting to want some more commentary from Jesus to free our consciences. To bail us out so we don't have to do what this woman did. But that's not what he does. No, he does the opposite. He says, this woman is the example. Be like her. This woman was poor in the world's eyes. She was rich in heaven's eyes. She had found a treasure that was greater than anything this world could offer. More valuable than Solomon's kingdom. What she had was more precious than anything Wall Street could offer. She had found the God of heaven. And she was happy to give everything to him because he had already become her everything. It is better... This is what she's teaching us. It's better to have God and nothing than to have everything and not have God. You do wonder what she was thinking. I mean, can you imagine 
just emptying your bank today, bank account. Just walking away, thinking, I don't know where my next meal's coming from. Can you imagine what was going through her mind? I wonder if Psalm 65, verse 8, verse 4 through 5, 68, verse 4 through 5 was on her mind. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. You wonder if she thought to herself, if God can part the Red Sea, if God can make manna and quail come from heaven, if God can make water come from a rock, then he can take care of a poor and lowly widow. When you know the unseen God is the all-seeing one, you are filled with hope because you know that God cannot and will not forsake his own. He will never neglect his people. The story of the Bible is God calling us to walk in faith and him telling us, I'm really good, just trust me. I'm going to give you all that you need. And this woman declares, God, I believe you. I believe you're true. I believe you're trustworthy. I believe you are faithful. What an example her faith is to all of us. So since I talked about government a few weeks ago, I figured I might as well just go all in and go after your money too. <laughs> Amen. In all seriousness, have you found in God what this widow had found in him? If so, how does it show itself in your life? Are you happy and generous because you know that in God you have no lack? Or do you give only when it's convenient for you, when the cost is low? As your pastor, the thing I want you to hear today, or the thing I don't want you to hear today, is just give more money. That's not what I'm after. Here's what I want you to do. Just love Jesus with everything you got. Love Jesus and trust him with your whole life. That includes your money, and just see where that leads you. This woman was just simply trusting Jesus, and her trust of Jesus led her to give. And now her life has rebounded throughout salvation history as an example of faith. Just love Jesus with everything you got and see where Jesus leads you. Because when Jesus is your everything, money won't be. You will be happy to give generously because God has richly provided all you need in him. And notice this widow was not twisting God's arm. She was not trying to gain God's favor. She wasn't thinking, if I give two coins, maybe he will give me six back. No, she gave out of love and faith and obedience, not worried about outcomes but trusting that God was a much better steward of her two coins than she could ever be. This is what I want for us at TRBC. I want us to be a people who are so happy and satisfied in Jesus that we just don't care about money. It doesn't drive us. So we give and give generously, not because the church has a need, not because we need a building one day, and not because we get a tax break. No, we give because we love God and we want to be obedient to him and we want to declare to him and to the world that he is better than this life itself. This is the goal. If we're loving Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and trusting him in every area of our life and we fail to meet the church budget, praise God. The budget is never the goal. You loving Jesus is. If we just love Jesus, he's gonna give us what we need. He's going to take care of us. He's going to provide what we need, 
now and forever. So the question isn't, how much are you giving to God? But how much do you trust God? Does your delight in Him and trust in Him, is it enough? Is it so much in Him that if He called you today to empty your bank account, that you would do it? Do you love and trust Him that much? Your money is never the goal with God. Your heart is. But money is typically the way that God takes a peek at your heart. That he exposes your real love. And when you're hesitant to give, what you're saying ultimately to God is, God, I'm not sure you're trustworthy. I'm not sure that you can be trusted with this. I think I'm a better steward of this gift than you are. But when you give generously, you're declaring to your heart, your bank account, and to God, God, I know you're the one who sees. I know you're the one who provides. I know you are trustworthy, and you are better than life itself. For a heart that is satisfied in God cannot be bought by wealth or pleasure. A heart that's satisfied in God will not shrink back in the face of affliction and suffering. A heart that's satisfied in God, not even the grave can rob because their treasure is God. Nothing can take that away from us. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we be like this woman. May God be our greatest delight now and always. May we declare by our love, by our life, and by our generosity that God is faithful, that he is trustworthy, and that he's better than life itself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you now in Jesus' name. We come to you in Jesus' name because you gave us what we need in him. We were poor, needy, vulnerable, and hopeless. Yet you made a way through Christ to be rich in him. Father, because of Jesus, this world is not our inheritance. You are. You are our inheritance now and always. Oh, Father, would you forgive us for believing the lie that money's better than you, that security and comfort and houses and, and work is better than you? Father, would you cause us to be a people who see you fully, walk by faith the rest of our days, and are happy to give whatever you require of us because we believe that you're that good and that faithful? Oh, God, loosen our grip on the things of this world. Cause our eyes, our hope, and our faith to be fixed on you. We pray you'd get glory through our generosity and for our pursuit of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.